morning. It is good to see you guys back here in town this morning. Uh, if you guys just rolled back, we are excited that you guys are here. If you are visiting or if you are new to Southwood this morning, uh, let me introduce myself. My name is Trey Corey. I'm the college pastor here at our Southwood campus, and we are thrilled to have you guys here this morning. I don't know about you guys. I'm sure you're excited about the fall, but before we take off for the fall, I want to take one last quick look back at the summer. Because maybe for me, maybe it was just me, but I felt like this was the summer of sequel movies, all right? So, had uh, The Bourne Legacy, obviously. You had Dark Knight Rises. Uh, for you ladies, there was Step Up Revolution. Can I get an amen? That's what I'm talking about. All right, there was Madagascar 3. There was Men in Black 3. I mean, how many more of those are they going to forsake and make, right? I mean, they keep going on and on. Avengers, there were some great sequel movies this summer. I hope you guys enjoyed some of them. Every time, though, a sequel comes out, I think to myself, man, they face a unique challenge. Uh, So many sequels, the original created such a hype, they created such a claim that people were begging for another, and so a sequel comes out, and few sequels ever live up to the first one, right? There are very few sequels that really match the hype of the original movie, and so sequels seem to really be set up to fail more often than not. In fact, there are some sequels that face an even added challenge that really, for many, is the death knell of those sequels. Some sequels have to face a change in the main character, right? So The Bourne Legacy, Jason Bourne is no longer going to be in it. So the question is, can the movie franchise continue without him? Let me take you guys for a moment. I want you guys to imagine, really, if the next Twilight movie were to come out and Edward and Bella were gone. Can you imagine the horror, right? I was thinking the same thing. I thought, really, another sequel of Twilight in and of itself would be a tragedy. Forget the changing of the main characters, right? Um, I'll admit to you guys, though, I am uh, maybe not so much of a closet fan anymore after this morning, but I am a Hunger Games guy, okay? I love Hunger Games. Imagine, though, in Catching Fire, when it comes out on the screen, imagine if they traded out and put in a new Katniss, right? That's just wrong, right? You can't, you can't continue on with a sequel with a new main character, and very few sequels survive that kind of change. In fact, this morning, really, as we open with The Born Legacy, I think The Born Legacy goes where so many sequels go to die, all right? And that's continuing on with the brand new main character. When I first heard that The Born Legacy was going to continue without Jason Bourne, I thought, that is heretical, and if anything, at least unimaginable. And so I don't know if you guys got to see The Born Legacy this summer. They did a decent job. It wasn't awful. I definitely didn't live up to the hype of the previous ones with uh, Matt Damon in any way, shape, or form. But it got me thinking even more so this. There's probably no greater parallel for the book of the Bible that we're going to be studying this fall than the Bourne legacy. Now, I'm not trying to say that Jason Bourne is Jesus Christ, because if I said that, you likely probably wouldn't be here next week, and the elders probably wouldn't let me be here next week either, all right? Um, But I think there's some striking similarities between the Bourne legacy and between the book of Acts that we'll be in this fall and for much of the spring. Both of them are sequels by nature. Uh, Bourne legacy continues on from a, a line of movies that have gone on, but the book of Acts itself is a sequel. The book of Acts is really the second part in a two-part series that the writer Luke wrote. First, the Gospel of Luke, and then the book of Acts that we'll be in this year. Really, is the second part of what he wrote. They go hand-in-hand with one another. In fact, they're both sequels, too, of the Bourne Legacy and the book of Acts. They're both sequels, really, in which they continue on while the main character is off the scene, so to speak. We'll see this morning as we open the book of Acts in chapter 1 that the main character that was really central in the the gospel of Luke is now gone. Acts chapter 1 will begin with the departation, really the ascension of Jesus Christ who was crucified, resurrected, and now ascended. And now Jesus Christ that was the focal point of the gospel of Luke, the first account, will not be really, in a sense, on the stage of the book of Acts. The sequel will have to go on without the main character. And really like Born Legacy, also in the book of Acts, what we're going to see is that these sequels that go on with new main characters and a new cast, so to speak, we're going to realize that those former main characters were merely the tip of the iceberg. 
Many will follow behind Jason Bourne and many will follow behind Jesus Christ. He was merely the tip of the iceberg. Irreplaceable, but many will follow along and pick up the work that he intended for his people to continue on with. And then lastly, really one of the last striking similarities we see between the Bourne legacy and the book of Acts is this. That those that will follow behind those main characters will be asked to sacrifice and lay their lives down at the greatest of cost for a program that is going to change the world. Ultimately, what we're going to see in the book of Acts this morning as we begin it, really, is a book that's going to tell not just of the birth of the church of Jesus Christ as Jesus departs from the scene, but we're going to see a movement is going to begin all the way beginning in Acts chapter 1, first century church of Jerusalem, AD. And what's going to happen is that that church, that movement, that good news and gospel is going to impact not just Jerusalem, but it's going to expand out from there to Judea and Samaria and ultimately even to the ends of the earth. What is going to begin in Acts 1 is ultimately going to turn the world upside down. And the story of the book of Acts is not just about dead apostles and dead men and women that we don't know anything about anymore. But ultimately, the story that breaks out in the book of Acts is a story that's going to ultimately include you and I as the church continues on to this day. And ultimately, what we're going to see is a story that God is writing is going to be inclusive of not just the first century church, but ultimately of you and I as God moves to change the world. And so ultimately, look with me, if you will, Acts chapter 1 this morning. We're going to begin verses 1 to 11. So if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Acts. Acts 1, it comes right after the Gospel of John. So uh, you have your four Gospels of your New Testament and then the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. If you guys will follow along with me. Luke writes, The first account I composed Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you've watched him go into heaven. Why don't you pray with me? Father, we give you great thanks for your son, Jesus Christ. One who was crucified for our transgressions. One who was resurrected on the third day to show that he had the power over sin and death. And Father, I pray this morning as we begin a new semester and as we open the book of Acts, Lord, I pray that you would turn our lives upside down. Lord, I pray that this book and this semester, Lord, I pray that your spirit would work upon us and in us in ways that would change us and transform us, that we would be different people. Not just after this morning, but through this semester, Lord, I pray that you would be transforming and changing us into your likeness. Father, I pray in the midst of the different things that we bring into this semester, the different pains and challenges of our summer, Lord, I pray even for just this morning that you'd allow all of that to wash away. And you'd give us a period of time that we could just hear your spirit, you'd speak to us and you'd lead us. Pray, Lord, that you would move me out of the way, Lord, and that you'd speak and provide the words just as you see fit, and that you would arrive uh, on the scenes, and that you'd impact our hearts, and that you'd speak to us in ways that we so desperately need to hear. Lord, I pray that you'd move in our lives this morning, Lord, and that you'd give us a fresh viewpoint of you 
that even though that you are ascended, I thank you that you are working in the very lives and the very hearts that we have. And I pray that we could see you in a fresh and a new way this morning, Lord. We ask for these things through your son and by your spirit. Amen. All right, well, Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, really, if anything, is simply a flashback. All right, Luke, as he writes the sequel, really is going to provide you and I a flashback to the end of the Gospel of Luke so that we know, hey, where is the story picking up as the sequel takes off? I hate when sequels take off and you totally forgot to watch the last one. You have no idea how it ended, and all of a sudden you're thrown into the next one, and you forget how the storylines overlap. And so really what Luke does for you and I is provide us a flashback to be reminded really how the gospel of Luke ended. And so really it begins in verse one. He says, the first account I composed Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Again, here Luke is referring to the gospel of Luke, which was really centrally all about the character of Jesus Christ. All that he began to do, all that he began to teach. And what we're going to see really in verses two and three is that this sequel is going to have a change of cast. Ultimately, this sequel is going to have a new set of main characters. And he says in verse 2 that until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. Verse 2 introduces really the new set of characters, the characters that were present in the Gospel of Luke, but now the characters that will step to the forefront really is the primary cast that this sequel is concerned with. So the question is, who are the apostles? Uh, as we look at the book of Acts, it's going to be a fascinating study because there are going to be many things we come across that are just crazy. <laughs> many things that are going to be unique to this book. Many things are going to be head scratching. It's going to be a fun study as we watch really the church emerge, develop, and then take off and turn the world upside down. And it's going to begin with this ragtag group of people that Jesus will refer to as the apostles. Interestingly, as we look at who they are, we're going to find really in verse 3 that Luke is going to be determining or kind of defining them as people who were so convinced by what they had seen. If we were, in a sense, to pull up an actress profile for these apostles on imdb.com, what we find first really is this, that they were those convinced by what they had seen because they had seen the risen Lord. In fact, Paul, was speaking of himself in 1 Corinthians 9, will say this. As some were questioning his apostleship, or as some were questioning his authority, he says about himself, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? And Paul's point is this, that to be an apostle, part of the expectation is that they are those that had firsthand visible knowledge of the resurrected Jesus Christ. That to be an apostle means that they had actually, with their own eyes, seen Jesus. In fact, Luke will say in verse 3, uh, he says, To these he also presented himself alive after suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. It's fascinating that in their appearance and their being able to see Jesus Christ, Jesus showed himself and presented himself in all kinds of ways to all kinds of people in all different times and in all different places. It wasn't like he, there was an isolated incident where he just showed up to an isolated individual and we had to just take one person's word for it. All right. Well, ultimately, as you look and cull through the Gospels and the post-resurrection ministry and appearances of Jesus, we find a ton of data as to what happened after his resurrection. In fact, we know, uh, supernaturally speaking, uh, that uh, in the morning, uh, as the women show up to the tomb, they find the tomb and the stone rolled away. The stories also tell of the guards falling asleep. And so God was working supernaturally, not just in the resurrection, but even in the coming of the women to the tomb. In fact, the women will be at the tomb, and two angels will meet them to explain to them what in the world is happening, because they show up at an empty tomb. Uh, a crucified Lord that they wanted to worship, they show up, and he's gone. He's gone. In fact, the women there at the tomb and they're talking and angels describe what's going on. And in another account, we find that, that Mary Magdalene has gone to the tomb and she ends up talking with a guy that she thinks is a gardener. All right. A gardener. 
And surprise, surprise, it ends up being Jesus Christ, all right? Jesus, in a sense, it begins to play a little bit of hide-and-go-seek with people, all right? Literally. I mean, he just shows up at the tomb, and, and Mary Magdalene has no idea who it is, all right? And eventually, as they're talking, finally, Jesus, in a sense, opens her eyes, and, and she's able to grasp who it is. He also plays hide-and-go-seek, so to speak, with the disciples. Two guys are on the road traveling to the tomb, and Jesus shows up and begins to travel and walk with them. And they're just shooting the breeze, according to the Gospel of Luke. And what ends up happening is they end up asking Jesus, hey, do you know what's been going on around here? And, and he's like, what are you talking about? And they're like, how do you have no idea what's been going on? All right. They're just totally punking Jesus. All right. And they continue walking down the road, and then finally Jesus begins to open up the Old Testament to explain to them what had to happen. And eventually, in a sense, Jesus again opens their eyes and they recognize him to be their crucified and resurrected Lord. He doesn't just play hide and go seek. He also plays a little bit of peekaboo because he'll have, he'll have the disciples and have families gathered around and he'll just show up in the middle of nowhere, right in the middle of the room where they've been gathering and hiding out. And then he'll say, don't be afraid. <laughs> I think I'd be freaked out of my mind, right? Jesus just showed up in the room that they're gathering. They're hiding out. They're terrified because their king was just killed. And now he just shows up in the room, right? And then he, I mean, not only does he show up multiple times to them, but he allows, them, he allows Thomas to touch his nail mark piercings. He allows them to see him eat. He feeds and he eats with them to show them that he's not just a vision, that he has a resurrected body. He's physically in front of them. This isn't just a case of bad indigestion and they're just seeing Jesus in a piece of bread, all right? This is real, all right? In fact, I love uh, why Luke will say that, the, that he appeared by many convincing proofs because the point is Jesus' resurrection appearances were not just singul- singular. He showed himself over and over again to multiple people over 40 days, all right? And so for some of us here, we talk about resurrection. You know, that's a critical part of the Christian faith. It's interesting to me. Luke will begin here in the book of Acts in the sequel, really, because the resurrection is the pivot mark between these two sequels, Right? The cliffhanger isn't just that Jesus was crucified. The cliffhanger of the gospel of Luke is that he is resurrected. He's back. And the question now is what's going to happen? And ultimately, I think for some of us, I want to ask you, do you believe that Jesus Christ was resurrected? Because if you don't, you're not ready for the rest of the book of Acts. Because this is a foundational watershed moment for the historic faith of Christianity. All right. The resurrection is vital. It is a linchpin. Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus was not raised, then we are still in our sins and this whole thing is vain and this is just one big elaborate uh, charade, so to speak, all right? The resurrection is vital. In fact, some of us uh, know and are familiar with the biblical testimony, but I want to take a step back from that and I want to ask you guys a question or walk you guys through the question. If the biblical testimony isn't enough for you, is there external evidence to the fact that Jesus Christ had to be raised from the dead? if the biblical testimony through the gospels and and throughout the new Testament entirety is not enough, then is there evidence outside of the gospels and of the new Testament to provide us a reasonable sense that yes, Jesus was resurrected. I think there's really two convincing proofs for me, two convincing arguments for me. And I'm going to quickly run through those because I think this idea of the resurrection is vital. First, I think the main reason why uh, I have confidence that Jesus was resurrected, not just because the scriptures tell me, but it's because of this. Remember, Jesus was crucified because a movement was beginning in Jerusalem and throughout the nation of Israel that the Jewish leaders felt threatened by and they wanted to quash. So they had the king, the Messiah, crucified. And now he begins to appear and there are stories busting out everywhere that he's appearing, that he's showing up and this movement is going viral and is catching and is going to light fire in a sense through the book of Acts. And what could the Jewish nation and the Jewish leaders have done to quash this yet again? They could have brought the body out, right? 
They could have exhumed the body of Jesus Christ, paraded in the streets, and this thing would have been over before it ever got off the ground. Your Messiah is dead, and he's still dead. So knock it off. But they didn't. They didn't exhume the body and pray the body out in the street because you know if they could have, they would have. So why didn't they? First real argument for me and why I think the resurrection is real is because the Jew, Jewish leaders did not exhume the body and they had nobody to parade around in the streets to show uh, th- this early fledgling Christian movement that they were, they were crazy. First reason is the Jews, I think, didn't exhume the body because they couldn't. So if they couldn't exhume the body, then where did the body go? I think you have three main ideas, three main possibilities of what could have happened to the body of Jesus Christ post-death. One is the Romans could have stolen the body. They could have been wondering, in a sense, maybe play a joke on the Jews, right? Uh, you guys are going to love this, right? We'll go get the body. We'll put some soldiers in front of the tomb, but it's empty, guys. We got the body stashed over here, right? I don't think the Romans had any motivation to do that whatsoever. The Romans were bit and parcel with the Jewish nation because they wanted to quash this movement. They wanted to quash this rebellion before it got out of hand. And so Pontius Pilate and the Roman authorities were hand in hand with the crucifixion. They had no motivation to steal the body and let this thing go viral. So what about the disciples? The disciples really are the most likely people that would have stolen the body. They had the most to gain. They had all the motivation in the world. But one of the things I love about our New Testament, one of the things I love about our Bible is they don't pull any punches. They show us exactly the real and the rawness of these Christian leaders. What was going on with the disciples at the cross and the immediacy after the cross? They have their tail tucked between their legs and they are running for the hills, all right? Because they are terrified out of their mind that the same thing that happened to their king is going to happen to them. And so they're hiding out and they've spread out to the four corners of the earth. They're gone. Peter's denied him in the courtyard three times. All the apostles and all the movement is just, they've gone in hiding. They've gone dormant. They are just scared for their minds. Really, as you look at the disciples, you don't see a group of people that are organized enough, ready and bold enough, or even able to take on professional guards and steal the body themselves, right? This is not going to happen. It's not likely. Sure doesn't seem like to be the state of mind of the disciples according to the Gospels. It shows us a real picture of what was going on in their minds and in their hearts. So where's the body? If the Romans didn't steal it and the disciples didn't steal it, then the body's gone, right? The third really likely possibility is that Jesus was resurrected and that the body was gone. Ultimately, I think really as you look at this idea, I think it's far more likely and I think it takes less faith to believe that Jesus was resurrected than it takes to believe that Jesus was not resurrected because where's the body? They could have quashed this in an instant, but they didn't. And the second real argument for me that I think is fascinating as to why I think the resurrection is real is that the disciples would die for this reality. If the disciples stole the body, how far would they go to protect a lie, right? People die all the time for things they think to be true when they're out of their minds, right? But in this case, would the disciples have suffered imprisonment, suffered beatings, been crucified themselves for what they know to be a lie when the fact is the body's just hiding out in someone's house, right? I don't think so. Uh, for me, uh, in college, uh, I don't know about you guys, but college was a, a huge time of pranks. And, and really, uh, one time my roommates and I had a bright idea. Uh, we thought we'd go to a sorority house and put one of our friend's names on the back of every single car in the parking lot, all right? Uh, that friend of ours would become my wife, Marcy, all right? So um, it's a weird way of flirting, I guess, all right? So, uh, so we put Marcy's name on the back of every single car in her sorority house, all right? And so the next morning she wakes up. We thought this was just awesome, all right? She wakes up and all of her uh, housemates are like, hey, are you running for an election? Like, what's the deal? Like, why is your name on every single person's car outside? And so she goes outside just flabbergasted going, what is going on? Like, who would do this, right? 
So she thinks of me. So she calls, she calls me, all right? And so she's like, hey, what were you guys doing last night? And of course, I know what she's trying to get at. And so I start being really evasive and, and try to flat out not lie, but just kind of keep moving the conversation on, right? And so I kind of held my cards. And, you know, there was a little bit of pressure, a little bit of, you know, I kind of liked her. I didn't want to, like, make her mad, right? Um, but I wasn't really ready to, you know, fold my cards and, and, and show my cards, right? So I kind of held them back. Uh, but then she sent one of her good friends, Becky, all right? And uh, Becky was a girl who uh, had uh, no sense of lines at times, could, could push people to places they weren't really ready to go. And so Becky, Becky found me in a hallway of the MSC one day, the next day, the next morning, and, and says, hey, how's it going? And I was like, great. And I was like, what's wrong? And like, eyes are just red. And like, it's clearly like she had been crying and she just wiped them away. And I was like, hey, are you okay? She's like, no, like, she's like, you won't believe what happened. But someone wrote Marcy's name on the back of my car with shoe polish. And the shoe polish drained down the back of the window onto my paint. And in trying to get the, the shoe polish off, my paint is ruined. And I'm going to have to detail my whole car. And I don't have the money. And she's just crying. And so she, she, went, she went to the roommate that was the most, the, the, you know, the emotionally the most weak. And I just folded in an instant. I was like, Becky, I'm so sorry. It was us. What do we need to do? I feel awful, right? You know, I just totally folded in an instant, all right? Because when the pressure got hot enough, I wasn't going to protect and hold on to this life for anything, right? I just let it go and I was gone, all right? I think what's fascinating, though, about the disciples is the heat and the pressure is going to get as hot as imaginable, they're going to be imprisoned. They're going to experience starvation. They're going to, uh, in a sense, by the end of the story, be crucified. Peter himself upside down because he didn't want to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord. And so you have the group of apostles, these disciples, who at the end of the Gospel of Luke are terrified out of their minds. Their tails are between their legs. They've run to the four corners of the earth. They're hiding out. And then all of a sudden we get to the book of Acts, and they are completely different people. As we look at the sequel, as it unfolds, this change of cast shows us that we have a very different group of characters here than we saw in the Gospel of Luke. The apostles have taken a turn 180 degrees. And, and they're going to hold on to that to the end of the story. <laughs> it is likely impossible that people will die for something that is not true when they think it's true. No one dies for something that they know to be false. No one does that. I think it's far more likely that truly Jesus was raised from the dead, not just because of the gospel accounts, because I don't know how else you explain this movement that will begin in the book of Acts that will take over and turn the world upside down. And ultimately, I think it's going to turn our worlds and our lives upside down as well. So ultimately, as we kind of walk through, it's interesting. Uh, uh, we're going to see Thomas uh, come before Jesus in another post-resurrection moment. And, and I think what he's going to say is fascinating. What Jesus says is Thomas is fascinating because it's not just about Thomas. It's ultimately about you and I. And the question is, the apostles had the opportunity to see the resurrected Jesus and they were convinced. But you and I don't get that opportunity. We don't get the opportunity to be so convinced by what was seen because we don't get the chance to see a resurrected Jesus. And so Jesus will say to Thomas, knowing that because you have seen me, have you believed blessed are those who do not see and yet believe these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God and the believing you may have a life. Jesus will foresee in the day that many will come after the apostles who will not get to see the resurrected Jesus. And he'll say, blessed are you if you believe, even though you don't see that really is the nature of faith. I can't prove to you that God exists. I can't prove to you that Jesus was resurrected. But the question is, will you take and will you trust the biblical testimony that Jesus was crucified on the third day he was resurrected and eventually he would ascend to the right hand of God before he would eventually one day return again? 
That is the Christian faith. That is the Christian hope. And what Jesus has done for you and I and his cross and his resurrection has shown that he died to forgive us for our sins and he rose to show that he had the power over sin and death. There is no way for you to merit the approval of God. The only way that you can find that, the only way that you can have your sins wiped away and escape the wrath of God is on the basis of what someone else has done on your behalf. It's what we call grace. Grace is the reception of an absolutely free gift that you could not work for no matter how hard you'd work. Jesus provides something that you cannot earn in and of your own merits. Jesus has provided it for you. It's a free gift. And if you're here this morning, you've never trusted in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins and for eternal life. Today can be that day. A semester can begin in a way that has never begun for you possibly ever before. That you can enter into a relationship today with Jesus Christ and all you have to do is say thank you. I am a sinner. I am in need. I am separate from you. And what your son has done on my behalf has provided me the payment for my sins so that I can be reconciled with you. Thank you for what you've done. And laying aside of all my own efforts because I am absolutely broke before you. I am so desperately of what you can provide. That's the hope and that's the gospel. That is the good news. And it will be that simple message that will turn the world upside down. In fact, if some of this stuff about the existence of God or the resurrection of Jesus is interesting to you, I will tell you in about two weeks, we're going to start an elective at our 915 hour in this very room uh, in which we're going to cover different apologetic issues. And so if you're here this morning, you're not totally sure about this Christian faith. If you have questions about Jesus or about the Bible, we're going to cover those at 915, uh, starting in two weeks for a good part of uh, of the semester, about eight weeks. And I'd highly encourage you to come. Uh, It's going to be a great session that we're going to have a guy teach. He's going to walk us through different major issues or apologetic issues for the Christian faith. And so if you're here and you're not totally sure about this Christian thing, I'd say, hey, come check that out. It'll be a great spot for you to wrestle with. What do you believe and why do you believe that? If you're here this morning and you do know Jesus Christ, I'd I'd say, again, that's a great spot to be refined and giving an answer and, in a sense, an explanation for your faith. Apologetics or or an apologist is not someone who's saying, I'm sorry for what I believe. (laughs) An apologetic response is an explanation for why you believe what you believe. If you want some help and you want to be trained in further being able to explain why you believe what you believe, this would be a great spot to sharpen your own answer. And I'd highly encourage you guys to come join us. For you girls as well, we're going to be doing an elective for college women at 915, in which Aaron, who did announcements, will be leading through a book called Calm My Anxious Heart. And so, again, if you're looking for something smaller on a Sunday morning, it'd be a great spot to come. We'll start in two weeks right here at 915. But again, back to the resurrection. It's interesting. Uh, John Updax will say this about the resurrection. Make no mistake. If Jesus rose at all, it was his body. If the cell's dissolution did not reverse, the molecules re-knit and the amino acids rekindled, the church will fall. The resurrection is the watershed moment between the two books, between the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Apart from the resurrection and its verifiability, we would never have what we have in the book of Acts. Unless something happened dramatically in the life of the apostles, there's no way we're going to see them act in the way that they act as we look through the book of Acts. Something dramatic occurred. I think they were not just convinced by what they had seen, but they were commissioned to share what they heard. Notice verse 3 again. To these he presented himself alive after suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. It says in verse 2 that they were given orders by the Holy Spirit to the apostles, that they were given orders by Jesus Christ through the Spirit. And what's fascinating is we'll see those orders here in a few minutes. But ultimately we're going to find that they were not just convinced by what they had seen, but they were commissioned to go and share what they heard. 
I, I picture the disciples at this moment and the apostles at this moment a lot like a football team before a championship game, all right? They were terrified, but some things have happened. They've begun to believe in themselves, and they're right there in the locker room right before a championship game. All that they've ever dreamed about to be, to be brought to fulfillment is right in front of them. They wholeheartedly trust their coach, in this case, Jesus, who has died and resurrected, and they will run through a wall for Jesus, and in verse four, we're going to see Jesus in a sense, gather them together in a sense, like a locker room scene. And, and in many cases, I can imagine a, a coach whipping his troops up to all, all kinds of a fury to send them out, to crash their heads through walls and to knock people down and to take home a championship trophy. But what Jesus is going to do with a group of amped up apostles who I think, think they can conquer the world at this point, he's going to do something very fascinating, maybe a little bit awkward and very surprising. Notice what he does really is in a sense, the plot is going to change here in verse four. Notice what happens. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now. I just imagine the apostles scared out of the minds, but now so convinced, ready to go out, been commissioned and given orders, and they're just ready to go and to charge. Jesus has gathered them together for one last little powwow, and I imagine they are just amped up and ready to go. They wholeheartedly believe that their king is a victor, that their king is going to change the world, and they are ready to go. And Jesus says, here's the first thing I want you to do. Just wait right here. <laughs> I want you just to kind of hang out and wait right here. I'm going to take off. And I want you guys just to kind of do some Sudoku. Uh, I don't know. Just kind of just chill out and hang out. I don't know what you need to do. Waste your time. All right. But just wait. At least for me, that's the last thing I would have expected Jesus to say. Plus the fact that I hate to wait. All right. I hate to wait on lunch. I hate to wait in the front of the microwave. All right. I hate to wait in a grocery store line. I hate to wait at stoplights. It doesn't matter what, when, where, or how. I hate to wait. All right. And I think some of you guys are like that, right? And so the apostles here, amped up, ready to go, ready to see all that they've ever hoped to be fulfilled, brought to fulfillment. Jesus says, wait. (laughs) Why does he do that? Why does he, with them all amped up, with everything right in front of them, why does he say, wait? Obviously he wants them to wait on something, but I think what Jesus is doing with the apostles here is basically he wants no Leroy Jenkinses, all right? I don't know if you guys know Leroy Jenkins. Um, the girls are like, what? Um, I don't know if you guys are World of Warcraft fans, but there is a, a YouTube clip, and I'll tell you, it's not exactly completely clean, all right? But uh, there's this scene where these guys are gathered together in a World of Warcraft virtual game online, all right? There's about 20 of them. You can see from the picture here, if you can see that. And they're all talking intricately and elaborately about the plan that they have to take over the world, all right? They're going to have divine interventions, AEOs, I don't know, all this kind of crazy stuff, all right? And they're talking, they're talking, and then literally it's like two minutes. They're just talking about this elaborate plan, and all of a sudden this one guy goes, he just gets impatient. And all of a sudden he just goes, Leroy Jenkins. And he just takes off and runs away into the room. All right. And all of a sudden everybody panics and they all go racing after him. And a minute later, everyone is dead. All right. Absolutely annihilated and dead and incredibly unhappy with him. All right. I think ultimately what Jesus wants is he wants to prevent any Leroy Jenkinses out there. Right? He doesn't want these disciples and apostles just running off because if they do, they're going to die horribly. All right. They're going to die anyways, which really doesn't make my point very well. All right. But here's the point. Ultimately, I think what we see in Acts chapter one is a pattern that we're going to see through the rest of the New Testament. It's a pattern that really begins here in Acts one and will continue through the book of Romans, through Ephesians, through Philippians, uh, through, through Romans, through much of the New Testament books, even second Peter. And that's this. Before Jesus ever gives you responsibilities, he's always going to give you resources. Far before he ever says, here's what I want you to go do. He's going to say, here's what you're going to need and let me give it to you. 
He doesn't want them running off to change the world because they're not going to be able to in and of themselves. And so he wants them to wait for the spirit to come so that the spirit can come and indwell and enable them to do what he has in mind for them. It's a pattern that we're going to see over and over again. Before Jesus ever gives us responsibility, he's always going to give us resources to fulfill those. Before he ever gives you and I a task to go and fulfill and go do, he's going to give us the tools that will enable us to fulfill that task. In fact, we're going to see that uh, also in Ephesians chapter 1, the very beginning of the book of Ephesians. Blessed be the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. The book of Ephesians begins with saying, hey, here's what you need to know. God has done all of these things for you. Before we ever begin to talk about what God wants you to go do, uh, Paul, Jesus, the Lord himself wants you to know all that he has already done for you before he ever says, here's what I need you to go and do. We see it also in 2 Peter chapter 1. His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Everything that God will call you to, he's enabled you to fulfill. The question is, are you aware of the resources he's provided you and are you aware of how to use those? I think for so many of us, as we walk out the Christian life, we think this thing is a whole bunch of do's and don'ts. It's about avoiding certain things. It's about doing the right things. It's about doing a drill, talking a game. And yet, I think for so many of us, we get in a place in the spiritual life when we realize it is impossible. <laughs> you get stuck in things that you can't get out of. You know what you're supposed to do, but you can never fulfill it. And I think for so many of us, we haven't realized the resources that we've been lavished with before we ever jump off and run after the things that he's called us to go do. Some of you guys are just owned by certain struggles. Some of you guys are just racked with guilt around certain things. And I would by and large argue that you've not yet learned what it looks like to walk in the light of the spirit that will allow you to have freedom from those things. Jesus Christ didn't just die and resurrect to forgive you of your sins and say, good luck till you get to heaven. (laughs) And no, no, he wants all the more for you because he's going to redeem you. And then he's going to say, Hey, here's what I want your life to look like. And let me come alongside you, provide you all the resources so that you can actually pull that off and walk that out. It's amazing. Before we ever get responsibilities, he always provides us resources before we ever get tasked. He's always going to provide us the tools to do those things. So really what we were going to begin to see is that uh, the, the apostles are going to get the resources they're going to need to fulfill the tasks that he has for them and for the church. And that comes in verse six to eight. Notice Luke continues on. So when they had come together, they were asking him saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? The concept of the kingdom was a dominant concept throughout the old Testament. The apostles who were Jewish in nature knew all of the old Testament promises. They knew what God was going to do in the world that he was going to establish a kingdom on earth. And when their Messiah was killed, all their hopes were shattered. How is my king going to establish a kingdom over the earth when he's dead, right? This isn't really working out like we thought. Oh, then all of a sudden, three days later, he's resurrected. He's showing up to them over a period of 40 days. And they're saying, hot skippy, now it's the time. Let's do it, right? I don't know what hot skippy means, but let's do it, all right? They're thinking, now is the time, all right? And in fact, in verse 6, basically, they're saying over and over again, the text says, they are asking over and over, hey, Jesus, are we doing this kingdom thing now? Because I'm ready to get my crown. I'm ready to rule over some people. Let's do that. And they keep asking over and over again. It reminds me of a three or four year old who's on a road trip with mom and dad. He's going to an amusement park saying, are we there yet? Thank you. Are we there yet? Right. Are we there yet? Right. And notice what Jesus' response is to them. Verse seven. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the epics, which the father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Here's what I got for you guys. That's what he says to the apostles. 
and to the church at large. Here is the task that is in front of you. A day will come when I will establish a kingdom on earth, but until that day, until I'm ready to set up my kingdom and rule over all of the earth, over all the nations, until that day, here's the task that I have for you. I've got you the resources. The Spirit of God is going to allow you to go do this. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to go witness to the world. You can say first in Jerusalem, and so we're going to see the gospel begin in Jerusalem. And really what you get here in verse 8 really is the structure of the entire book of Acts. We're going to see the gospel begin in Jerusalem, and it's going to take over Jerusalem, and it's going to move to Judea and Samaria. And by the end of the book, we're going to see that the gospel has moved from Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. That is the story of the book of Acts. It is the movement of the gospel as the gospel moves from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth as it turns the entire world upside down. That's really where we're headed. And in fact, for us as a church, here's how we put it in our own context. If you've not been to Grace Bible Church before, let me introduce you guys kind of our own mission statement as a church. Here's what we are about. Raising up next generation leaders to reach our world for Christ. We realize that for one, two, maybe six years for you guys, I don't know how long it's going to take you guys to get out of Texas A&M or Berlin, all right? Uh, we have the opportunity to walk with you guys, the opportunity to impact you. So our desire is to equip you, to challenge you in your faith, because a day is going to come that you're going to leave our midst. And our hope is as you guys leave one day that you'll have the opportunity and be enabled and ready to make an impact for the gospel across the entirety of the world. Some of you guys are going to step into homes. Some of you guys are going to step into schools. Some of you guys are going to step into businesses. Some of you guys will be right in Dallas or Houston. Some of you guys will go to North Dakota. And some of you guys will go to China. You guys are going to spread out as you guys graduate and you're going to take off. And our vision and our hope as a church is that you guys are the next generation of leadership for our culture and for our world. And our hope is that your lives are seized by Jesus Christ. And that you will lay your lives down for Jesus Christ because the wonder of what's going to happen in the book of Acts is if we'll make our lives available to him, he's going to write a story with our lives that is far grander than anything we could else do ourselves. And so while you're here, we want to throw you guys a few opportunities. We've mentioned these to you guys already. I want to quickly just mention, uh, while you guys are here, we hope you get involved. Sundays are great and they're exciting, but really community is not what is the most effective here. We want you guys to get involved in all kinds of small groups. And so if you're a freshman class of 2016, that was weak, but awesome. All right. Uh, we want you guys to know we have Dulos, which is our freshman Bible study Wednesday nights, all faith, seven to nine. All right. If you're an upperclassman uh, here at Southwood, we have growth groups. We're going to be studying the book of First Peter, which is just dynamite rich. We'll start off with predestination on week one. So come on. Uh, we'll be studying the word uh, Tuesdays right here at Southwood, 630. We begin not this Tuesday, but next Tuesday, right? And if you're looking for a place to study the word, but also to be involved, practically speaking, to serve at our church, servant team is a great spot to do that. They're going to be studying First Peter as well here on Tuesday nights at 630, but they're also going to be jumping into and helping lead our ministry. And so we'd love for you to consider those options. But ultimately what we're going to see really uh, as this passage ends in verses 9 and 11 is we're going to get a clue to the ending. Really, verses 1 to 11 is a flashback to the ending of the Gospel of Luke that sets up the sequel and introduces you and I to the fact that we're going to have a new cast of characters. We're going to have a new plot or a new cause that's going to change the world. And then lastly, here in verses 9 to 11, we're going to get a sense that we're going to get a clue to the ending of this sequel edition, all right? But before that, I want you guys to remember verse 1. Luke said about all that Jesus began to do and teach, that the first account, the Gospel of Luke, was what about Jesus began to do and teach. And the implication is, if he began something... He's not finished, right? So really, the, the book of Acts, although Jesus will depart from the scene, we're going to see Jesus' fingerprints all over the entirety of the story. He may not be a character walking across the stage through the book of Acts, but we're going to see his fingerprints and his handiwork everywhere. But notice, it's not just that Jesus isn't finished, but he's going to return, verses 9 to 11. And after Jesus said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. 
And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into the heaven will come in just the same way as you've watched him go into heaven. This Jesus isn't finished. Though he departs from the book of Acts, he's very much working through the book of Acts. In many ways, we're going to see his spirit moving in ways that you could never have imagined, even if Jesus were here. It is going to be Jesus departing and allows his spirit to come and to move and cause a movement to go viral across the world and to turn the world upside down. And what's fascinating about this sequel is that the main character will depart and will be the tip of the iceberg of many who will follow behind to lay their lives down for a cause that will change the world. But what I love about this director and this screenwriter for the book of Acts, not just Luke, but particularly God himself behind the scenes, is that he doesn't need a Christian Bale. He doesn't need a Jason Renner. Uh, he doesn't need any famous actor to continue to carry the story along. In fact, this director and this screenwriter is going to use a, a ragtag group of apostles, uneducated, untrained fishermen to change the world. And if he can do that much with that kind of individual to the book of Acts, what could he do with you and I? We're not special. <laughs> We're not amazing. Many of us are just ordinary. But if Jesus can do that with that group of apostles, and if the story is continuing, what more can he do with you and I? The apostles, as Jesus takes off, are just staring in the sky, overwhelmed, unsure of what to do next. And so the men come along to remind them, hey, there's a task that he's given you. It's time to get to work. You guys are going to be staring up in the sky come tomorrow, and syllabi are going to descend upon you like evil vultures, all right? Uh, you guys, and I don't mean to advance your focus that direction, but come tomorrow, you guys are going to be staring up, lost, overwhelmed. Some of you freshmen won't know where to go tomorrow, all right? You're going to be wandering around with maps, you know, lost, which is just awesome, all right? Um, but let me remind you, in the midst of whatever it is that you're dreaming about this fall, in the midst of whatever dreams and hopes, whatever story that you hope is written of your fall semester, let me challenge you with this. Who's writing your story? Are you hoping and are you working as hard as you can to craft a story that will be amazing, that will fulfill all the hopes you have? Or are you willing to lay your life down and put it in the hands of a Savior who was crucified and resurrected and is a far better screenwriter and a far better director than you ever will be? Your dreams are shallow and they can be insignificant and I am the same way. The things that I hope most for, the things that when I'm just dreaming in and of my own self, they're so shallow because what God will do if you'll hand him his, your life is things that you could never have imagined and you could never dream. Things that are far grander and far more significant than sometimes the little castles that we build and little towers that we have in mind. God wants to do something even more. So let me ask you, will you let him? Will you say, hey, here's my semester, here's my life, do with it as you see fit. If you're a freshman, will you say, hey, here's my college experience, I've been looking forward to this forever, but now that I'm here, is it going to be my experience that I will determine what happens, or will you hand it over and say, Lord, do with me and do with this college time as you see fit? That's my hope for you guys. Let me pray for us. Father God, I thank you that you are sovereign. Thank you that you are compassionate, and that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords that you would willingly die in our place so that we could have life and life eternal. And I thank you that in your resurrection, you provide us verifiable reasons and proof that you are sovereign and that you are powerful over sin and over death and that your church will prevail. It will not fail. That you will accomplish something through your people, through the church until the day that you return that will turn the world upside down. And Father, I pray for us this semester. I pray that you would turn our worlds upside down that you would turn our lives and our hearts upside down and that you would seize us and that you would grab us in a way uh, that we would just joyfully uh, 
thrill you our hearts and thrill you our lives. Father, I pray that you would rewrite our dreams, that you would rewrite our hopes, and that you would show us something even more grand and even more significant. And Father, for some of us, if we don't know you at all, Father, I pray that you would begin to beckon us and invite us into a relationship with you. Father, we thank you for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Guys, thanks for being here this week. We'll see you guys next Sunday. Y'all have a great first week of classes. Love you guys. See y'all.